Amen, amen. Well, I know one of the things we miss most about coming together as the people of God is, is seeing people. So, so, so I know we're just missing those sweet faces of our church family, our brothers and sisters we see every Sunday. So to help with that a little bit, this morning, coming from her home, reading our scripture text as we continue on in Luke this morning, reading our text this morning is Elizabeth Wyndham. fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Good morning, Fellowship family. Uh, we sure miss you, and I think if I could characterize our prayer for you and for us is that uh, the, this momentary physical separation uh, would help us to see Jesus more clearly, to trust him more fully, and to adore him more with our, with our whole hearts. And so we certainly are praying that, and more than anything, maybe, that we'll never, ever forget that together is actually better. So, uh, man, we, we look forward to uh, living that out uh, this morning, uh, or not this morning, but in the future mornings. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 12, as we have been in this series, as we teach through the book of Luke, called The Road Less Traveled, and Luke chapter 12, 49 through 59. I thought about making the title of this sermon, Who Would Have Thunk It?, because we are going to see something this morning that is rarely talked about, about Jesus, but is a theme throughout Scripture. We know, folks, there's a perception, popular perception, that Jesus is a man of peace and love only. This one-sided view of Jesus is often reinforced at Christmas time or in Hallmark movies or in spiritual cards that are made that we buy and send out, and even in churches where their doctrines can be somewhat loose. After all, doesn't Isaiah 9, 6 say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? At his birth, we know that the angels sang that Jesus would bring what? Peace. Ezekiel 34 says he is the promise of the new covenant, and that promise is a promise of peace. Even the Jews in the days of Jesus, when they thought about the Messiah, they thought he would be one that would bring peace, a national peace, if you would, because they took verses like Luke 174 
out of context that says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies out of context. Yes, they saw the Messiah coming to bring a national peace to Israel, especially to deliver them politically and militarily from Rome. So we, as a culture, if we've done anything, we have tamed Jesus. We have sanitized him. We have domesticated him because of this one-sided view of him. But what the Jews and the world and even we as followers of Christ can misunderstand is there is a condition to getting or receiving the peace of Jesus. Folks, there cannot be national peace or Jewish peace or any other kind of peace until there is a personal peace. And this only happens when Jesus reigns in the hearts of his people. This text this morning actually addresses that. Now, just for a little context, since we saw in chapter 9 where Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to go to the cross, you'll notice if you happen to have a red-letter Bible, which indicates the words of Jesus, that since chapter 9, starting in chapter 10, the words got a lot redder. There were a lot more red words. As Jesus moves toward his crucifixion, He's not just moping along. He's not just going, oh, woe is me. I got to go to the cross. I'm going to die. No. We actually find that he is increasing his teaching. And there's this increasing urgency in his presence and communication. The intensity we find starting in chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and on and seriousness of his message is rising. There is a sharpness to his language that has not been there. It is like a laser. And he is using that language in his teaching. He's cutting to the heart to deal with issues and to confront people's own hearts. Go ahead if you want. I would encourage you this week. Go back and read chapter 10 and 11 and 12. No one in those chapters, is left off the hook. Not the expert in the law in chapter 10. Not Mary, the sister of Martha, in chapter 10. Not after he cast out a demon in chapter 11. And then he tells the crowd, whoever is not with me is against me. Not when a woman tried to bless him personally in Luke eleven twenty seven, And his response to her was to shun the personal blessing. And he responded to her, with blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He corrected her. Not when his popularity was growing and the crowds were increasing in Luke eleven twenty nine, And he just turns to them in the midst of that popularity. And he says, you are an evil generation. So now this morning, this is just not a matter of Jesus turning his intensity up a couple of notches. His words are literally vibrating with intensity. Listen to that text that was just read to us. He uses words like he's bringing fire and that he cannot wait until the fire comes. He says he is distressed till the baptism comes and bringing strife and families 
until they are divided or torn apart. Yeah, this is a hard passage, but this is a needed passage. There is no doubt that something has changed here. So it is important for us this morning to not only understand the text, but also to realize its implications for us. So our first point is the dividing event. The title of this message is Jesus, the one who divides. And first we look at the dividing event. Look at, if you would, verses 49 and 50. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So here Jesus is describing the one event that is the dividing event for all of humanity. This one event puts every person ever born on the face of the earth into two categories. Notice he uses this phrase, I came. And this phrase, I came, is not just a simple verb form. It is a mission statement. He used this often throughout his ministry in three and a half years on earth to describe from different vantage points his mission of why he came. Verses like John 10.10. He says, I came that they might have life. Luke 19.10. I came to seek and save that which is lost. So he repeats this again here. And he says, I came, mission statement. Why? To cast fire on the earth. And I wish this fire would have already happened. I wish the fire had already been kindled. Now when we think of the word fire, what does that mean? Here, it is a picture of judgment. Fire is often used to describe judgment, as we may know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Listen to his words in John 9, 39. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and to those who see or think they see may become blind. This fire brings judgment, and it does so, because it does two things that are common to anything that fire touches. It purifies or destroys. That's what fire does. In spiritual terms, it brings eternal life or eternal death. So the coming of Jesus is a fire thrown on the earth to do what? To purify or consume. And then he adds this phrase, Oh, I wish it was already kindled. And when he uses the word baptism here, it's a different context. Jesus is speaking here of his death on the cross. He is saying, I wish it had already taken place. He even says Jesus is distressed because he is ready to fulfill the purpose of why he came to earth. In some ways, uh, because until his death occurs, what he can accomplish is limited. He uses this word distress to express this emotional distress that Jesus desires to do more than he is able until his death comes. Jesus understood that before he can be the judge of all, he must be judged by the one, the God of the universe. That he must be first be judged by the fire that the Father puts on him. And in doing so, 
will bear God's wrath towards sinners that he should have, should have had, that we should have had to bear. In some ways, this is the picture as Paul writes about in Romans. This is the picture of the just for the unjust. John Stott, in his great book, The Cross of Christ, that is a classic, and I would highly recommend it, speaks often of this. He says that the cross cast the shadow on Christ for his entire life, that there was never a moment in the life of Christ while he was on earth that the cross was not real to him, that he knew at all times, laying on his heart, laying on his mind, laying on his emotional state, that his future was the cross. And here, only 10 or so months away from his crucifixion, he knows this cross is going to become a reality. And here he tells us in these first few verses, I am ready for it. Now when we think of that, let's remember Jesus is no weirdo who just loves pain, is looking forward to the physical agony that he's going to experience while on the cross. But he is looking forward to what his death will accomplish. Listen to how the writers, writer of Hebrew 12 puts it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus hung on the cross in his last words, right before he took his last breath, were what? It is finished. He's not saying, I'm glad the pain is over. He is saying, it is accomplished. That my death has accomplished God's purpose to secure salvation for those who trust in my death to pay the penalty for their sins. He is saying, oh, how I long for my death to be completed because I long for salvation to be provided for them, for us. Jesus took the fire of God's judgment on himself so we would not have to take the fire of God's judgment on ourselves. The death of Christ and the following resurrection of Jesus is the dividing point. In all of history, he is telling us here, it divides people into two categories. Those that trust him for salvation and those that reject him in attempt to save themselves. Now, we know from human history that there are many, including many of you listening this morning, most of you this morning, that they have trusted Christ and they experience undeserved mercy his undeserved grace, his undeserved forgiveness, and yes, peace, because the, the war between God, a holy God and sinful man, had been solved through the shed blood of Christ. So many do trust Christ. But many others reject Christ, and they do so because of their pride. They don't need God. They hate to admit that they're a sinner in need of forgiveness. They hate to admit that they're deserving of God's wrath. They hate to admit that they can do nothing to save themselves or to pay for their own sin. So what happens is the cross becomes a stumbling block to them. And here's what it does. It's what he's telling us this morning. 
it puts men and women into two categories, purified or consumed, forgiven or condemned. Speaking of events in human history, I want to project the future, and Monty spoke about this a little bit last week. There's another event. There's one more event that will divide men and women in two categories. Charles Wendall puts it this way. He says, all of human history is moving toward an unimaginable, transformational event that will reorder the universe from atoms to galaxy. And that is the second coming of Jesus Christ as King. Years after the death of Christ on the cross, years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, <clears throat> the Apostle Peter put it this way. He says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? But the Lord, who is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward those mockers, not wishing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance in him. And the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth will be destroyed by what? By fire. Jesus draws a line. He's doing it this morning. He will do it when he comes. He draws a line in the sand, and he says, people must take sides. And I think my heart this morning, and God's heart, more importantly, is asking you, which side are you on? And there's still time for you to take a side if you have never bent a knee to Christ. Because you will bend a knee. Either here, as you submit to your life to Christ, or when you stand before the judgment in front of God. You'll bend the knee one or the other. Paul writes in Romans 14, 11, As I live, says the Lord, every knee, every knee will eventually bow to me. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who mock him now, they will confess those exact words. This is no fairy tale. This is truth. So, we have the dividing event. Next, we have the dividing in eternity and the here and now in verses 51 and 53. I've already spoken of the dividing in eternity and, and what I just said, but I wanted to put it in the outline just to give us a picture of the contrast of the dividing also in the here and now. Look at verses 51 through 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. What we do know from Scripture is that everywhere Jesus went, there was division. Read your gospel accounts. It's everywhere. I'm reminded of John 7, 
arose a division in the crowd because of Jesus. In John 10, there was a division among the Jews. And Jesus is saying, those who reject me will also reject you. Not just those in the country you live or in the town you live, but all the way down to the most intimate of relationships, those in your own family. Jesus is telling us that not everyone will accept that he is the Lord and creator of the entire universe. And in light of that, it's so important how you and I respond to him and his work on the cross. It is that our response far surpasses every relationship. He's saying here, even the most intimate family relationships. Notice here that Jesus asked the question, and then he answers his own question. He says, do you think I have come to give peace? And then he answers with a resounding what? No. The reason is, and I mentioned it earlier, but I want it to be clear. The reason is because peace only comes to those who have responded to the death of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. Only to those who have bent their knee to his lordship and are allowing his death to do what they could never do, and that's pay or make the payment for their sins. Listen to how Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes in Ephesians 2, starting with verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the what? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. <clears throat> this peace and this passage is all about this is not universal to everyone. This peace comes to those who have submitted to him and trust his death to pay for their sins. This offer of the gospel divides even families. Jesus says there's no neutral ground. And I want you to notice here the strong language by Jesus because he didn't say this strong statement with some sheepish tone or I'm sorry, or I know this is hard, or oh, yikes, I hate to say this, but no. He doesn't have to because of his exalted position of creator and king of all. Even, he's saying, if our allegiance to Jesus causes family divisions, he's saying, you follow me. He is saying, you follow me because I am so much more worth your allegiance than even your closest earthly relationships. Now, I hope I don't have to say this, but I'm going to say it just in case I do. It is the gospel that is to be offensive, not us. We are to work hard and to pray hard to have great relationships with our families. So important. But if our families mock us, hate us, 
uh, go against us because of our allegiance to Jesus, we must let the chips fall where they may. Stand firm, bear that hostility, and stand for Christ. Here's how the great theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon put it. It is not the gospel that is to blame for such divisions, but it is the corrupt heart of man. So we have the dividing event. We have the dividing in eternity and in the here and now. And now we have the dividing in awareness, verses 54 through 56. Look at those verses. <clears throat> he, Jesus, also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret this present time? Here's what Jesus does. He now goes into illustration mode with his first of two illustrations. In his first illustration, he becomes a weatherman. He says, look, you see a cloud rising from the west. What do you do? You know it's going to rain. You feel a south wind blow, and immediately you know hot weather is coming. He's saying you people have the awareness to make connections, to see the signs of weather, to predict and plot the weather, but you have no awareness in how to interpret what is right in front of you. God in the flesh is standing right in front of them, and Jesus is confronting this. He's saying you do not are not aware of what's happening. Jesus is saying people have great awareness to dedicate themselves to all kind of things, like knowing the approaching weather, like anything a person may study, what they may become good at, whatever their job is. People have this awareness that I need to become good at something, and they work hard at that. And he's not downplaying that, but he is saying in contrast, that all of those things, whatever they are, including the weather and anything else, these things are insignificant when compared to the most important thing in all of life. And in that case, that day, the most important thing in all of life is Jesus Christ. And he's standing right in front of them. Another way to put this is spiritually, spiritually aware, are aware of what's most important. And the spiritually unaware are simply aware of trivial things. Put another way, if we analyze the weather and order our lives by it, Jesus is saying we should analyze who he is and order our lives by it. The Jews past experience with the Old Testament scriptures, growing up, knowing what the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah, who he would be, where he would come from, all the prophecies that were fulfilled in this one person of Jesus. And add to that the miracles that the thousands and tens of thousands had seen him do. And Luke had recorded in earlier chapters. If they had been attentive, 
Those in the crowd, those Jews in the crowd, they would see who he was, but they were not. The dividing event, the dividing in eternity and the here and now, the dividing in awareness, and then lastly is the dividing in guilty or not guilty. Look with me, verse 57 through 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The dividing in guilty or not guilty. In his second illustration here, to drive his point home about who he is and why he has come, Jesus takes us to this imaginary courtroom. And in this parable, Jesus likens all of mankind as if they were on a processional to the courtroom. And all of them are guilty. All of them, men and women. And the reason is, all men and women have sinned against a holy, perfect God. And he says here, they will receive a sentence of death. They will all stand before the judge in the courtroom of God. And the only way that we can settle our debt before this holy God is by allowing Jesus, the Son, to pay that debt. His point, we as people are quick to settle a case against us if we are guilty in civil matters. I can think just a few years ago, I got my last speeding ticket. I should have got more. I know I speed more than I should. But I got a speeding ticket, and the first thing I did The first thing I did after the ticket, I picked up my cell phone and I called a highway patrolman, Bill Fitzgerald, in our church. And I said, what do I need to do to take care of this, to make it as cheap as possible, to not get points on my driver's record, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I went all the way back a few weeks later to Grundy County, Tennessee, and I waited for several hours in that courtroom to take care of business so this speeding ticket would not harm me too much. Jesus is saying here, we are quick to settle a case against us, a case where we're guilty in civil matters. How much more quickly should we settle God's airtight case against us before it's too late? He's also saying if we don't settle our debt, there will be no escape on judgment day. We will never get out of hell because our debt is against the holy God. He's saying it is better to confess one's guilt and to rectify the situation than to pay for it fully ourselves. Because the one who ignores God's call to repent and to place their trust in the blood of his son The ones who reject that, the ones who mock that, the one who says no to that, Jesus makes it clear they will be dragged away to eternal death. The picture here 
is tragic. The picture here is there's no release. There's no escape. There is one escape. Jesus Christ. For those who throw themselves on him for his mercy, who say, I'm a sinner. I am need forgiveness. I trust in your death on the cross to wipe my slate completely clean. My sinful slate completely clean. I love the psalm that says that God removes our sin when we place our trust in Christ. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. I love the writer of Hebrews 10.7. He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I love Hebrews 10.10 that says our sins are washed away and we are made clean because Christ gave his own body as a gift to God. He did this once for all time. This morning as we close up, Jesus is telling you and I, he's telling you and I there are more important things than anything else that is going around in our life or our world. He's telling us there are more important things than a virus, even a virus that might kill some people. Because every man will die, and only those who trust in the provision of God's Son will live eternally. Secondly, he is telling us don't go through life paying attention to lesser things and make them more important than Christ and his mission. Matter of fact, the big takeaway for us who've already placed our trust in Christ, for the body of Christ, for those we call followers of Christ, the big takeaway is just that for us. The priority of his mission is the message that we're to take seriously the purpose of Christ, and his purpose is also our purpose for the world. Christ did not take on the fire or the wrath of God so that you and I can do as we please. The word of God in this passage wants to get our attention, and it wants us to live in such a way that there's this continual amazement and gratefulness to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for that. Take a minute and ask the question, so what, as Kevin leads us in that. This morning as you ponder the words that we've talked about and taught in Luke 12, I think the first question is to those of you who are listening, where do you stand with Christ? 
Has there been an important time in your life, as I did back in college, unexpectedly, life came to a halt. Life didn't make sense, and I placed my trust in Christ, in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins in Belk Dorm at East Carolina University. If there's never been that time in your life, this morning you can place your trust in Christ. And then secondly, for those of us who know Christ, take a minute to consider what's really most important to us. Take a minute to ask those questions. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you bore the wrath of God that we deserved. We thank you that your death on the cross and your shed blood paid the penalty for our sins, all of them, past, present, and future. We thank you now that we have access to the Father through you. Nothing could be more important. Help us this morning as we think about these two categories. Lord, how, how your fire purifies us, makes us acceptable to a holy God that we would live that out and grow and mature and chase hard after Christ. And then another category that it consumes. So may we, the body of Christ, who have the greatest message ever told, may we take the initiative to love our neighbors and by loving them, speak with them about the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord. And I pray for even a time such as this, in our nation, that you would use it to bring many to faith in you. And may you use us in that process. Lord, I pray that you would calm our fears, you would settle our souls, and we would chase harder after you and never forget the great work that you're doing in us during this season. We love you. We're grateful. Everyone, I can't hear you, but say amen. Great. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again next week uh, at 11 for our live stream. Make sure uh, to use all the resources uh, that Monty talked about on our website. And um, obviously let us know of any needs and prayer requests at info at fbcrc.org. Love you, miss you, cannot wait to get back with you. Thanks.